Australia in the World is a podcast produced with the support of the Australian Institute of International Affairs. The AAA wants Australians to know, understand and engage more in international affairs. All views expressed are solely those of the speakers themselves. Hello and welcome back to the Australia in the World podcast. As always, you're with Darren Lim from the School of Politics and International Relations at the Australian National University and Alan Gingell, National President of the Australian Institute of International Affairs. Hi, Alan. Good to be with you, Darren. <laughs> uh, thank you. Well, it's Friday evening, uh, Canberra time. So thanks, Alan, for giving up a bit of your Friday night to chat on the 23rd of April. As always, there is a lot to talk about, um, so it's hard to know what to pick and, and where to begin. We're going to choose three items today, and we both want to begin with Afghanistan, the announced withdrawal of combat troops by the US and Australia, and, and, and take a few minutes to reflect on a two-decade war. I think that's important. Next, we're going to look at contrasting approaches to managing bilateral relations with China by Australia and New Zealand, another wild week on that front, um, as reflected by a speech by the New Zealand Foreign Minister and uh, Canberra's cancellation of the Victorian Belt and Road Initiative Agreements or Memorandum of Understanding. And finally, we're going to briefly consider the summit between President Biden and the Japanese Prime Minister Suga, which happened a bit over a week ago now. But look, we think it's important to start with Afghanistan, even though it's not something I suppose most of our listeners think about regularly. So, of course, what's happened is President Biden has announced that all U.S. ground troops will be gone from the country by September 11th of this year. And there have been reports that they're going to try and make it happen even sooner, perhaps by uh, the 4th of July. Now, Biden said explicitly that this was an easy decision for him to make, although it apparently did go against the advice of at least some of his military advisors, generals and so forth, that such a full departure would increase the terrorist threat. Now, of course, this particular 9-11 deadline is very significant because it will mark 20 years from the initial 9-11 attacks on American soil back in 2001 that began this war. Now, Prime Minister Morrison followed this with an announcement that the last Australian troops would also leave by September. And he was you know, somewhat emotional in that press conference, reading out the names of the soldiers who'd been killed and so forth. Alan, I think you know, we'd both love to spend an entire episode talking about this, but let's ask the obvious question first. Do you think this was the right decision in terms of timing, or should the US military and the ADF, to some extent, be staying even longer? Australia withdrew from combat operations eight years ago, of course, under Tony Abbott. So for Australia and for the United States, this decision just relates to training and uh, support troops. Mm. Abbott's modest summary of what Australia had done at the ceremony in 2013, which was marking the closure of the Tarrant base, always sort of seemed moving to me. Uh, he said then, Australia's longest war is ending, not with victory, not with defeat, but we hope in Afghanistan that's better for our presence here. Since then, the Brereton report has tarnished the reputations of some Australian soldiers but I'm confident that the overall Australian commitment was beneficial to the Afghan people. As with Iraq, we followed the Americans in and we're following them out. Should they have stayed? Well, how much longer is always the question. The argument for staying on is that the withdrawal sends a message to the world that the United States isn't prepared to stay the course 
and that this will be read in Beijing and Moscow as a sign of American weakness. Mm. And secondly, that in the absence of the small American and NATO military presence, the Taliban is likely to return to control with the predictably dire consequences for women and girls' education and so on. I don't think the first concern is real. That is, I don't think the China and Russia will read it as a sign of American weakness. More likely, it seems to me, is that they will, especially in the light of the other decisions Biden has been making, read it as a new determination by the United States not to scatter its forces, but to focus on the strategic things that matter to it most. Domestically, the outlook may be grim, although Afghanistan has defied many past predictions about its future. And the way to respond on our part, I guess, can only be with continuing aid and diplomacy and interest in the country. In contrast to the Iraq war, which I think was a terrible error, I understood and supported the decision to go to Afghanistan after 9-11, but I can't help thinking that Biden was probably right when he argued against Bob Gates and Hillary Clinton during the Obama administration for a much smaller, specifically anti-terrorism presence. Mm. And as the US intelligence community pointed out in its threat assessment to Congress last week, I think, the terrorist threat has now spread much more widely, including into areas of Africa. So Afghanistan is no longer as central as it was. So, you know, plenty of problems and dangers lie ahead, but I think the decision was the right one. Yeah, I do too. And I think your framing is right, that we have to answer the question, one, by asking what is the consequence for the US national security situation and for that of its partners like Australia? And two, what are the consequences for Afghanistan itself? And on the first question, my thinking actually was less about the reactions of the major powers like Russia and China, but actually the specific terrorist threat. Afghanistan was invaded because it was harboring al-Qaeda. And so the problem that you were trying to solve was terrorists using friendly countries as bases for operations. And one way of solving that problem, of course, is to get rid of that government and install your own government, a friendly government that doesn't allow such basing to occur. But of course, that hasn't been sustainable as we've seen over the past 20 years. So the question then is, does the US retain the military and intelligence tools and the credibility to deter any other regimes, and this would include the Taliban if they return to some semblance of power, and they already control much of the country anyway, does it deter them from harboring that would be terrorists and terrorist networks? You know, we know Sunni extremism is making a comeback, and you mentioned that in the intelligence assessment, Alan, including in Africa. So I think that is the challenge. And I don't think that their continued presence was really contributing to that deterrent. And so I think it's time for a new approach. But then second, we turn to the consequences for Afghanistan. Now, of course, the US isn't leaving entirely. The military is leaving, but that will mean that there is a civilian presence still. There are contractors and, and diplomats, of course, without any security provision and the training services provided by the US military. And this is risky, but you know every approach involves risk here. And of course, we worry for the civilian population, especially for women and vulnerable groups, and we hope that the international elements that remain can help and can do good. So the withdrawal remains, I think, in that sense, a very consequential and fraught decision. But I can see easily why it was not a difficult one for Biden in a political sense. Yeah. Now, Alan, 
most of our listeners probably haven't thought about Afghanistan in any serious way for a decade or more. And certainly everything recently has been China, China, the US and the Indo-Pacific. So why should we care about this? And what lessons do you think we need to learn from this two-decade conflict? I heard Biden talking when he was making the announcement about how some members of the US armed forces now in Afghanistan had not even been born at the time of the attack on the Twin Towers. Yeah. So the, uh, the, the first lesson is to remind us how foreign policy and national security concerns change over relatively short periods of time. You think back to the early 21st century, if you can, and I know some of our listeners probably were like those service people in Afghanistan, but at that period, we were responding to the shock caused to the American psyche by a direct attack on its home territory by a terrorist group. And suddenly, the focus of Australian defence and security was all on the challenge from non-state actors. Every, you know, every government speech and statement and every academic study seemed to be about non-state actors and ungoverned territories. And this was reinforced for Australia after the Bali bombings. We had Australian ministers talking about the vital national interests that Australia had in the Middle East. And the whole of government approach in Canberra was all about how to redefine the way we thought about national security. You know, it's been striking now the way in which some members of the commentariat are uh, talking as though we had taken our eyes off the main problem. But some of those very people, I think, were at that stage, like everyone else, properly focused on this. The change now is that the shock to the American psyche this time around has been the recognition, especially after the global financial crisis, that the US will no longer be the world's largest economy mm. and that a new peer competitor is emerging in China. So states suddenly once again become the focus of attention. And in a way that wasn't true of the 20th century Cold War, Australia is much more relevant and closer to the centre of this. So that's one lesson. Things, uh, things change quickly. The second lesson is that the Americans and Australians in our own way in Oregon province have been taught again how hard it is to do nation building for others and how expensive it is in both dollar terms, make a guess, but the best guesses are $2 trillion for the United States, and in the human terms for both the foreign fighters and for the Afghan people themselves. Mm, mm, yeah, that's terrific analysis, Alan. You know, I can't help but think about it through the broad sweep of history and the rise and decline of great powers. And in many ways, you can think of 2001 as the real high point or the end of the high point of US post-Cold War power. You know, their unipolarity was just so total at that point that they had the capacity to entertain such a massive state-building empire-like project. And the US just doesn't have those capabilities anymore. As you say, Alan, in, in a relative sense with the rise of China, but also in terms of political support, as we've talked about in many dimensions on this podcast. I agree with you that the lessons of state building being so hard are very stark. And that's, you would add to that, you know, democratization and the attempt to build political institutions. Indeed. I think that hierarchical models of global governance, whether that's empire or some more modern equivalent, 
are just exhausting for hegemons and ultimately exhaust them. What, and what, what does that mean, Darren? Well, I mean, I think I'm using hierarchy as a bit of a euphemism for empire, right? I, I've always been reluctant to think of the US in traditional imperial terms. And I know there's a huge critique out there that the US is just a modern version of, of whether it's Rome or you know, one of the middle European empires or the British empire. Um, and so, but I certainly accept that the model of international order that the US built still had hierarchical features in it and that the US, although it was providing public goods and it was building a system of rules and institutions, took the lion's share of the gains from that order and abused the privileges when it wanted to by ignoring the rules. Mm. And so I look at Afghanistan you know, almost through the lens of a fading imperial power, or at least at then the point of where it was it, its powers at its peak and their withdrawal now as a fading power. But I'm still uncomfortable with the precise term of empire, and so I think of it more in terms of hierarchy. And that going forward now, we're going to see less hierarchy in the system in terms of how states project power. You know, A more even balance of power means you have less ability to conduct these grand imperial projects, if you're going to use that language. Threats will still be responded to, interests will still be defended, but in less hegemonic ways. And I think you even saw this under Obama in the debates you were alluding to with Biden and Gates and Clinton. You know, there was a shift in the Afghanistan strategy away from counterinsurgency, you know, the winning of hearts and minds in the sort of the mid 2010s towards counterterrorism, right? We're going to use drones and do, you know, blow up really bad guys but not make as much of an effort to win over provinces like they were trying in Iraq or even with the surge in the late 2000s. And so I think even then you saw the shifting strategy as being a reflection of fading relative power on the part of the US. My last point is to return this to our discussion of Myanmar last episode and the role of the military that will play in Myanmar's future. And to run the counterfactual, you know, let's go back to the end of 2001. The US has successfully invaded. It's in Kabul. And you have the Bonn conference in Germany that was really to decide the fate of the country from then on. And the question I ask myself is, the Taliban was excluded from that process. Should they have been included? right? Should they have been brought in somehow? Look, I don't know how, but somehow into Afghan governing institutions and given a role and tried to be normalized, even as distasteful as that was at the time. Now, I wasn't there. And so obviously, I don't know whether that was in any way feasible. But 20 years later, the Taliban is still there, and they have been quite successful. And we are thinking about this, or this issue now through the lens of Myanmar, and it, as distasteful a regime that's doing horrible things, but has the power to make itself an inevitable force, probably in the future of the country. And so I'm wondering if we are learning that lesson or we will learn that lesson as we manage this new crisis. Okay, let's move on to the big news down under this week, because it was a big week in the bilateral relationship that both Australia and New Zealand have with China. And so I want to pair the stories together. We've been talking about this very recently on the podcast. Let's start with New Zealand, where Foreign Minister Mahuta gave her first major China speech earlier in the week, and then made headlines with some specific comments after the speech about the Five Eyes intelligence grouping, expressing her discomfort about expanding the group's remit beyond its original intelligence sharing purposes. Now, Foreign Minister Payne travelled to New Zealand, we have the travel bubble open now, later in the week, 
And on the occasion of Minister Payne's visit, Foreign Minister Mahuta repeated her sentiments, and I'll give a quote here. The Five Eyes arrangement is about a security and intelligence framework. It's not necessary all the time on every issue to invoke Five Eyes as your first port of call in terms of creating a coalition of support around particular issues in the human rights space, end quote. Now, these comments, you know, grouped together with her earlier comments, and I suppose to some extent what she said in the speech, and we'll get to that in a moment, have been wrapped up in Australia and described and criticised as signalling some shift in New Zealand policy, a potential break from Australia, a potential break from the Five Eyes countries where some have said we're in Four and a Half Eyes territory now. And it didn't help that Beijing came out and expressed its approval of what she had said. So, Alan, we have this very serious speech, which I do want to talk about on China. We love speeches on this podcast, as our listeners know, and we'd love to analyze them. But we have then, separate to that, these news headline grabbing comments about Five Eyes. And I wanted to ask you, obviously, about both. On the latter, of course, our listeners will know that you've expressed your own bewilderment, if not skepticism, in the past about the expansion of Five Eyes into some of these new domains. So I'm wondering, one, did you find yourself in agreement with what she was saying on that? But two, what did you think of the China speech? Well, I did, I did agree with her, both in her comments about Five Eyes and in what she had to say in the speech. And I, I have to say I'm just frankly bemused by some of the criticism that I've read because it doesn't seem to be directed at the actual policies of the New Zealand government on human rights in China, which are very similar to our own, but at the fact that these policies have been expressed nationally in a sovereign fashion, you might say, rather than as part of a grouping of Anglophone countries. So, you know, huh? I don't normally do this, but I'm going to read a chunk of the Mahuta speech sure. so that listeners who haven't done that, as clearly a number of the commentators <laughs> <laughs> had not, will know what we're talking about. So this is what she said. Different perspectives can be positive and underpin cultural exchange and learning, but some differences challenge New Zealand's interests and values. There are some things on which New Zealand and China do not, cannot, and will not agree. It is important to acknowledge this and to stay true to ourselves as we seek to manage our disagreements, mindful that the Takanga underpinning uh, New Zealand Maori expression, uh, how we relate to each other must be respected. On many occasions, New Zealand has raised issues privately with China. Where there is tension, we take a consistent and predictable approach through diplomacy and dialogue. Matters such as human rights should be approached in a consistent, country agnostic manner. We will not ignore the severity and impact of any particular country's actions if they conflict with our long-standing and formal commitments to universal human rights. Sometimes we will therefore find it necessary to speak out publicly on issues like we have on developments in Hong Kong, the treatment of Uyghurs in Xinjiang and cyber incidents. At times we will do this in association with others that share our views and sometimes we will act alone. In each case, we make our decisions independently, informed by our values and our own assessment of New Zealand's interests. Now, substitute Australia for New Zealand in that and tell me that it's not a rational and sensible statement of national policy. Indeed. 
There can be good foreign policy reasons for acting collectively with other countries on certain issues, but the question you have to ask yourself is whether a joint démarche is more or less likely to deliver you the outcomes you want. And I simply don't believe that China's going to take more notice of a Five Eyes press release on Xinjiang and Hong Kong than national statements issued by the five governments. Yet the result is for us to reinforce the conviction in Beijing and more broadly in China that Australia is operating as a proxy for the United States. And we know that post-Brexit Britain, of course, is looking around for, you know, for any group that it can join. And, and I wanted to note too that Mahuta actually spoke up for Australia. She said, Diplomacy requires commitment from both the dragon and Taniwa. This is the sort of uh, imagery of the two mythical animals that she used to frame the speech, to respect the tikanga of engagement. And we look for a similar spirit of respect and engagement to be shown to all international friends and partners. As a significant power, the way that China treats its partners is important to us. Yeah, I'd definitely encourage listeners to read the speech. We'll, of course, post it in the show notes. And I I should also add that Prime Minister Ardern was also asked about this. She did an interview on the ABC, Australian ABC, I mean, uh, on Breakfast Radio. Um, And she was asked whether or not together all of these words from Mahuta were a signal that New Zealand was not one with its Five Eyes partners. And Ardern pushed back. She refuted against that idea and introduced, I think, some further nuance to Mahuta's Five Eyes comments, at least. Um, backing her up by saying that Five Eyes wasn't necessarily the best platform, echoing what you've said, Alan, and suggesting that sometimes going wider, for example, to include a country like Germany could be effective, and other times going narrower, such as a bilateral approach with just Australia. And that makes sense to me, Alan, as does everything that you said. There has obviously been at least a superficial case made here in Australia that it is bad, that we're unfortunate that New Zealand is expressing some of these reservations as they've been characterised. But what I am not seeing, Alan, is exactly what you've asked for, which is the sophisticated case that the Five Eyes grouping specifically is the optimal vehicle for cooperation, is the most likely to be effective in achieving our joint strategic goals, whether that is deterring or somehow influencing China, or whether that is cultivating support and awareness of the issue in third states. I'm not against Five Eyes, obviously, but I agree with you, Alan, that I think the Five Eyes response is baked in now by China. And so I'm yet to be persuaded that it would move them, that it would change any strategic equilibrium. And I'm happy for someone to make that case. I just haven't seen it. So I like the idea of being more creative with our approach, you know, especially on human rights, given it is so difficult. I mean, the best thing to do would be to persuade some other regional partners to be involved, but even persuading a large European country like Germany, as Prime Minister Ardern suggested, would also be something new and really change, even just at the margins incrementally, you know, China's calculation. So let's contrast New Zealand's position on all this with the decision made by our Foreign Minister Payne and the federal government to cancel the infamous Victorian Belt and Road Initiative agreements, the Memoranda of Understanding this week, the two of them, using the new legislation that was passed by the government, it seems, explicitly for this purpose. Now, this should obviously not be surprising to anyone. You know, they went to the trouble of drafting the legislation after all and going through the legislative process. 
But I have to admit, I did wonder whether all of that effort was just to create a deterrent effect. But clearly not. You know, clearly they intended to use this tool and they did. And unsurprisingly, Beijing reacted exactly as you would expect with much displeasure. And I guess it remains to be seen whether that displeasure is followed up by anything. So I've been wondering what the justification was or could have been for these cancellations. It's worth saying that there were two other agreements that were cancelled at the same time, both uh, from Victoria, I believe from the education department, one with Syria and one with Iran, one of which dated from the late 1990s and one, if I'm right, from the mid-2000s. And I read in the Financial Review today that neither of those two agreements had ever actually done anything, like they'd ever acted upon them before. So they'd just been sitting on a shelf somewhere gathering dust. So the question is why? What is the tangible gain for Australia's national interest in proceeding? And I put this question to our friend, Alan, um, Stephen Jedgetts, and, and you were there too at our Clubhouse conversation a few nights ago earlier this week. And he described to me what his understanding was of the government's position. And I've asked for his permission to lay this out. And I'll, I'll probably won't do it justice, but it was something to the effect that having a state government like Victoria with these agreements contradicted and therefore undermined the federal government's position on Belt and Road. And that weakened or hampered our diplomacy in the region. So it wasn't as much about our own sort of sovereign position, but how we communicate and persuade and, and position ourselves on BRI in the region. You know, we are trying to persuade others, I suppose, to be more cautious on BRI. And the argument is that the Victorian position undermined that messaging. It weakened our efforts to shift countries on their BRI position. So, you know, whether it's that logic or some other logic, Alan, do, do you see even trying your best a compelling logic for merit in this cancellation decision? Uh, no, I don't find it compelling, um, but I do find it concerning that Australia has put in place legislation which assumes that Australian foreign policy and the national interest are like an eternal flame you know, kept in the foreign minister's office, always the same, never varying. And it's perplexing to me that we accept this in a democracy like ours, because the national interest is what we contest at every election. It's always changing. We've, you know, had some discussion of that even earlier in this podcast. And the same is true of our values. They change too. Uh, there is, in a society like ours, no foreign policy catechism which we have to learn and recite. And just doesn't seem to be much awareness in Canberra of the irony of responding to the authoritarianism of China with such authoritarianism of our own, and all purportedly because of the fear that a Victorian MOU with no legal status would undercut the government's diplomacy in Asia. Really? From my point of view, Alan, and I've probably said this at the time because we've discussed these MOUs before, you know, I couldn't really see the point of them. Um, you know, It didn't get Victoria anything concrete as far as I could tell. And I guess you could argue that there was a small propaganda victory for the Chinese given it was a government in the Western country signing on. And even that, I couldn't really imagine how it would change much of anything. So for me, the question is, 
to repeat what I said earlier, what is the tangible benefit for Australia's national interest in doing this? Because we can agree there are definitely downsides, I think. There is the domestic downside of a vague law that could be used in all sorts of unforeseen ways by future governments, probably to the regret um, of the current government. Plus, there is the uncertainty it creates for other organisations like universities that are trying to build relations abroad. And not that there isn't to say there's merit in overseeing what they do, but it does create uncertainty. And of course, there is the cost of upsetting China. Now, there may be listeners who don't mind that, but my starting point is that you don't want to upset anybody in diplomacy and in international relations unless you've got a good reason to do so, unless there's a tangible benefit for the national interest. And so I am yet to be persuaded that one exists here. I do find it hard to believe that the existence of these agreements really has been a factor in a foreign partner not heeding Australian advice, you know, where they say, well, I, I would have I would have agreed with you, uh, Australian friends, but if Dan Andrews has signed up, so clearly it's not that bad. I just can't see that being the tipping point. And, of course, I find it even harder to believe in this political environment, with everything that's happened in the past few years, that Victoria itself would have done anything into the future on BRI you know, to really put the federal government in an awkward position. I think any residual propaganda value that China might have gained from having this agreement has been extinguished by their behaviour in recent years, you know, whether that's on Hong Kong and in Xinjiang, the wolf warrior diplomacy and so forth, meaning that people who are signing up to BRI are not doing it because of they've been persuaded that it's a good idea. And again, I just, you know, I just don't see anyone in the world saying, well, I wasn't sure about this BRI thing, but you know, if Dan Andrews says it's okay, then it's good enough for me. It doesn't strike me as being plausible, which means all you're left with is essentially poking China in the eye. And look, maybe some people in the government and elsewhere like that idea, but it doesn't strike me as being a sustainable and effective long-term strategy. So Alan, let's try and draw these threads together, uh, New Zealand and Australia, Are we seeing in this past week the beginnings of a split between the two countries on how we manage China? Um, Look, possibly, Darren, but that's mainly because the New Zealand government seems to have a position on how to manage China, whereas it's hard to see, for me anyway, that the Australian government does. Now, I don't mean by that that we aren't preoccupied with China in our defence, security foreign policies or that we're not responding to China across the board from our investment decisions to our aid program. But there's no strategy for managing here beyond doubling down on our traditional relationships with the US, UK, Japan, Bivars, and new ones like India in the hope that this will deter China from reckless military action, and that's a good objective certainly, and to somehow prevent it developing more global influence. So when Scott Morrison lists the emerging threats to the Indo-Pacific order, territorial claims, he says, military modernisation, foreign interference, cyber attacks, disinformation, unfair trade rules, he's referring, obviously, in each case to China, but he's got nothing really to say about how to manage the high probability that whatever we might hope for China is not going to revert to being a stakeholder in an American-led system, nor about how we are going to handle that. I thought Chinese DCM Wang Xining's line at the press club earlier this week 
that Australia regarded China as a, quote, cow to be milked when she was in her prime but was plotting to slaughter her in the end was a clever enough line. But there was actually a slightly uncomfortable truth to it in the way we've been looking. So that's the difference I see. And again, you can read Mouta's speech to see some of those uh, those elements in it. But am I, you know, am I being excessively negative here? On the big questions, I don't see much daylight between the two countries. New Zealand is still critical on human rights. Huawei is not part of their 5G network. They still want China to participate in a multilateral rules-based order and one that looks much more like the post-war order that was led by the United States than anything China has proposed. So I'm not sure they've really got an answer to what a China-led world would look like either. But I think, you know, it's worth just asking why is it that New Zealand is going in this direction? And I do hope, what what has brought about this messaging and this perhaps this beginnings of a change in strategy, if that is indeed what we are seeing? And I assume that there are folks inside Canberra on you know, working on assessments that have views on this. And I'm hoping that there is some sophistication here. It's not just a reduction as well, you know, they've been sold out or that they've been coerced or, or anything like that. Because, I mean, here's my guess of what's going on. And it's that Wellington has a different theory of the case here. They think that there is merit in maintaining some level of goodwill in the relationship with China and that such goodwill, maybe, perhaps, might lead to influence on important matters of Kiwi national interest at some point down the track, maybe. And they accept that maintaining this goodwill has costs. Sometimes you're not going to follow along with your Anglo friends. Sometimes you might be subject to a mean tweet from former Foreign Minister Alexander Downer, as he did in the last few days, saying that we weren't best mates anymore. And you might get some pressure behind closed doors from your Australian and your American counterparts on this. And they are okay with these costs because I would hope that they assume that the fundamentals of the relationships with Australia and the US are still pretty strong, although maybe that's not true, but I hope that it is. I think it should be. And they see these costs, importantly, as worth the bet that there is some chance they can influence China in the future. Now, this is where I might disagree with you, Alan, at least in theory, that I think there might be a logic to what Australia is doing. And it's based upon a different calculation and a very grim one. And that is that there is little point in maintaining any goodwill with China, that Beijing has already made up its mind about Australia, and that there is nothing that we can do to disabuse them of that assessment. And you remember, I asked Francis Adamson back on our 50th episode, whether or not China had already made up its mind about Australia. And I was thinking about trying to give a coherent logic to what the government is doing. This is what I come up with, that they've just decided, doesn't matter what we do, China is going to see us through the same lens. And so we may as well squeeze out every inch of sovereignty preserving rhetorical defiance that we can, because we assess that it will help our national interests, you know, protecting our security at home, I suppose, Maybe it helps us engaging with third parties or or maybe there's a judgment that it will deter on some level. But that's the view, right? They feel like there's nowhere for us to go. And that even if we adopted you know, policies that looked more like what Wellington is doing, or even just statements, that China would pocket those and nothing would change. Now, that's the assessment. I don't know whether that's true, but that would be the assessment that at least make you could see it having a clean logic to it. Now, If I'm right and that these are the twin assessments, my assumption is that over the next five or 10 years, one of these views is going to age better than the other. But obviously, we don't don't know that yet. 
Uh, anyway, it is a bit depressing. Um, let's turn to our final item today, which is, of course, the summit that was held when Japanese Prime Minister Suga travelled to Washington, D.C. to meet with President Biden. It was a wide-ranging discussion that really touched upon a lot of sensitive issues with China. And so clearly, China was the main focus of the summit. You had discussions about China's increasing military deployments around Taiwan, broader maritime issues in the East and South China Sea, Hong Kong issues, uh, Xinjiang, as well as some discussions of technological cooperation on 5G, AI and semiconductors and so forth. From a symbolic point of view, this was Biden's first meeting in person with a world leader in, in Washington. And of course, it's also equally as symbolic that China was the main topic of discussion. So what did you make of the optics and the substance of the summit, Alan? The focus was on Japan, but the audience was China. Scott Morrison was the first foreign leader to meet Suga in Tokyo, of course, and Suga is now the first foreign leader to meet Biden in Washington. As with everything we've seen so far from the Biden administration, you saw careful preparation, including the Blinken and Sullivan visits to Tokyo in advance, and you saw clear objectives. The outcome of the meeting itself wasn't particularly surprising. Um, as you noted, there was a sort of reference to Taiwan, but most of this had been foreshadowed. But Biden certainly has succeeded in repairing a lot of the damage that Trump inflicted on the alliance with Japan and on the US alliance system more generally and has uh, reasserted, I think, the power and weight in East Asia of the US-Japan alliance. When he came to office, we may have even talked about this at the time, um, commentators were reminding us of how Biden's background had mostly focused on Europe and that he was familiar with the politics of Europe. And I think I underestimated how consistent his administration's focus on Asia would be. And just in passing, again, listening to another speech, which was Biden's introducing the infrastructure package, mm. you could see the domestic reasons for this as well. You could hear the great weight that he placed on the Chinese challenge to the United States as a spur to getting the political support he needs to adopt his economic program at home. Yeah, yeah. I, it all sort of went as expected for me as well, I think. But in contrast to my supposition that whatever the Five Eyes is doing on any given subject is not going to really move China at all. I think Japan is a much more consequential state. And even though it's moving slowly, it is still moving with purpose and in a way that Beijing is noticing. I mean, the fact that Taiwan even came up and was mentioned for the first time, I think, in 50 years almost, it was a long period of time since Taiwan had been officially on the agenda, is significant. And it doesn't mean you're getting a lot of action. It's slow, as is the Japanese way, but it's full of meaning and it is a much more meaningful signal to China and much more likely to deter China. I mean, whether it could, I don't know, but it's more likely to than what any given Five Eyes statements. So I think that's important. The second thing I'd mention, and this is really to highlight an area of ignorance for me, but is to really wonder how domestic politics of China are playing out in Japan. I knew a lot about this five plus years ago when I was studying Sino-Japanese relations back then. 
But I'm curious to learn more, and hopefully we can get a guest on in the future, actually, about you know the human rights situation in China, but also the general sort of rise in power, how that's shifting coalitions inside Japan. You've obviously got a long history of historical grievance, and that has always meant that there was a real anchor of anti-China sentiment, you know, it must be said, on the far right of the LDP, the governing party, and also among the Japanese public. Um, but Obviously, the Japanese government is going to need public support as it begins to take more and more risks, I mean, let alone being prepared to fight in a Taiwan contingency. And so I'm curious, you know, we've obviously seen a big shift in Australia, looking at the Lowy polling, looking at media reporting, obviously, which is part of the shift, I suppose, in public opinion here. And I think the government you know, regardless of what people like us are saying on podcasts, Alan, the government still enjoys a pretty strong support from the public on its China policy. And China is really being cast as the bully or the cause of the disruption or the tensions in the relationship. So I'm curious as to how that, you know, you've got opposite this sort of core historical grievance. You've obviously got Japan's strong peaceful streak, you know, the one that is worried about the Japanese military being drawn in, um, is very skeptical of Japan reasserting itself as a military power. And it's been a very slow process for successive LDP governments to try to, you know, change the constitution and, and to make Japan a more quote unquote normal defense power. So you've got different domestic currents. And I just wonder how those are changing, whether there is a, you know, just as I think we're seeing in Europe, the beginnings of a stronger public opinion response to China, a few years behind Australia perhaps, but one that's getting started. I'm curious if there's a similar dynamic there and, and that might um, be a strong anchor for Japan doing more, which as I said to my first point, is really going to get Beijing's attention. Anyway, we've said enough I think today, Alan. Let's wrap up with our final segment of reading, listening and watching. What have you got for us this week? I'm going to share a secret, Darren, and that is that I sometimes get a bit depressed by the bumper sticker nature of much of what passes for public discussion about China in Australia. Alan, uh, you've never uh, said this before. No, 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 I know, I know, I know, I know. just uh, whisper, whispering it uh, in, your, in your ear here, <laughs> Darren. Um, commentators who know very little about China making huge generalisations about the country and its politics and its intentions uh, you know, you, the sort of Xi Jinping dictator for life stuff you see in newspapers as though intra-party and regional politics aren't playing out in some form all over the country. So the result of this is that I sometimes need a deep immersion in scholarship from people who actually know what they're talking about. So I've been watching the three 2021 Reichau lectures from the Harvard Fairbank Centre for Chinese Studies which were delivered this year by Rana Mitter, who's the Professor of the History and Politics of Modern China at Oxford. And he draws on Japanese history as well as Chinese and gives a really fascinating insight into the way contemporary China thinks about itself. And he does it through three really unusual prisms. You'd never guess these in advance, I think. But he talks about the three lectures through three themes of newness, emotion, and purpose, that is the purpose of the state. So really wonderful, and you can find them on YouTube and at the Harvard Fairbank Center's excellent podcast as well. Terrific. Thanks, Alan. I've got two recommendations. One is a very serious one, um, which is an essay that has recently been published by the professor, the historian Adam Tooze, whose work I think we've both mentioned on the podcast before. And it's about the evolution of Paul Krugman, 
who is a Nobel Prize winning economist, a columnist for the New York Times, and an individual who has really changed over the past 20 years from being a very sort of orthodox economist, a gatekeeper for the economics profession, to becoming far more progressive in his political and in a connected way, his economic outlook. And it just is a really good overview, not just of the man himself, but I think in some of the ways the discipline of economics has changed in the past 20 years. And it actually pairs very well with a piece that Ezra Klein wrote again for the New York Times a few weeks ago on the Biden economic team, and that they are very much sort of departing from the orthodoxy, not because they necessarily disagree with the economics of the orthodox view, but they disagree with the politics of it. And I think there's a real shift there on the democratic side of politics, I think in part enabled by Republican policymaking over the past decade in quite radical directions, and we really don't know what's going to result. Um, the one that I don't really know how to describe it. I'll just say that if you have not read the essay that was published on the 1st of April on the War on the Rocks website, which I will link to, and the title of the essay is The Longest Telegram, A Visionary Blueprint for the Comprehensive Grand Strategy Against China We Need. If you have not read that, I will not say anything about it. I will just say, click on the link and go and read it right now because it is well worth your time. You recommended it to me, Darren, and I thoroughly endorse that. I do urge people to read it. That is all for today's episode of Australia in the World. We thank AAA intern Dominique Yap and thank her for her help with research and audio editing today. And of course, thanks also to Rory Stenning for composing our theme music. That's all and talk to you again very soon.